Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, I am so excited to announce that we're partnering with Bose to bring you two special episodes of the My Buddy Green podcast, each focused on ways to set yourself up for sleep success. My Buddy Green and Bose share a belief that a good night's rest is as essential for your mind and body as your daily diet and movement, and we're uniting in our mission to improve and optimize our quality of sleep. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you know that health is more than veggies on your plate or morning yoga. It's about effectively managing your stress levels, carving out time for yourself, fitting in fitness, optimizing your nutrition, and finding peace and calm at the end of the day when your head hits the pillow. Join us for this first Project Sleep episode featuring the acclaimed sleep doctor, yep, the sleep doctor, Dr. Michael Bruce, and listen in mid-episode to learn more about how Bose's innovative sleep buds can support your sleep. Michael, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited you're here. I can't believe it's taken this long, but better late than ever, and talk about a topic that is more relevant than ever, sleep. And you are quote unquote, the sleep doctor. So we have the right guy here. So let's talk about your journey to becoming the sleep doctor. Absolutely. So first of all, obviously, thanks uh, for having me. And it's a great opportunity to meet the Mind Body Green community. I'm excited to meet everybody there for sure. And the journey to becoming the sleep doctor actually was not a straight path. Surprise, right? So I was uh, studying in undergraduate uh, psychology because that was kind of my area of interest. And then I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Georgia to get a PhD in clinical psychology. While I was there, I was actually really excited because I wanted to work with athletes. I decided at that time I was going to become a sports psychologist. So for folks who may or may not know, there's a whole field of sports psychology where we look at the mental game of sports and we get people motivated and psyched. And then there's also things where you can train people to throw faster and run harder and all these kind of really cool things. University of Georgia, which is where I was, had an amazing sports psychology department. It was outside of the clinical. So it was in the division one sports part where all the cool stuff was. So I got a chance to do some really interesting work there. When you finish your PhD in clinical psychology, you do a residency, much the same way that an MD doctor would. So you go for a year and you actually get to practice what you've learned for the last four years. The best sport psychology residency in the country was, believe it or not, at the University of Mississippi uh, Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi, right? And I was so wanting to go. I mean, I put every arrow in my quiver facing that target for sure. Unfortunately, they said to me, you know what, Michael? We really like you, but we really only let in the people from Harvard and the people from Princeton and the people from Yale. We know you're at a top 20 program, University of Georgia, but unfortunately, we've kind of already found our group. I was like, okay, understood, no problem. While I was searching around on their site to figure out another way to get into this program, I noticed that they had an entire section for sleep and sleep medicine. And I had worked my way through graduate school in the electrophysiology department. So I am the kid whose parents would show up in the room and he had taken apart the telephone and then put the telephone back together. There were like five extra parts on the side and the phone works better now than it did before. Like I'm that kid. So in graduate school, I was looking for a job because I had to put myself through grad school. And this department was perfect for me because I get to take apart things and put things back together. So anyway, I learned how to use all the same machines that they use for sleep. 
but I had no idea that I knew how to use those machines. So I sold myself as a sleep guy, figuring if I could just get to the University of Mississippi Medical Center, I'd just transfer into the sports psychology department. Just because you don't let me in the front door doesn't mean I'm not going to figure out a way to get into your program. So I sold myself as the sleep guy. They accepted me to the program. I'm super excited. I get there and they say, all right, go ahead and start in the sleep program. Because I said, hey, I want to transfer. They said, hold on. You promised us you'd do the sleep thing. You got to go over there. By the third day, Jason, I fell madly in love with clinical sleep medicine. And I'll tell you why. I help people like this. It's unbelievable how you can identify a sleep problem in somebody that nobody else has ever seen. And honestly, dude, I fix people's lives sometimes in under 24 hours. It's incredible. So you speak about the problems of sleep, and there are many, and we're, we're going to dive <laughs> into those. And I, But with that said, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about sleep, oh, yeah. and, and more specifically, a quote-unquote good night's sleep. So what are some of the greatest misconceptions about sleep and what we define as a good night's rest? So here's what I'll tell you is I don't even like the idea of a good night's rest because it's so personalized and it's so different for everybody. The biggest myth I hear, eight hours. Everybody needs eight hours. Let me be clear. There is nothing less true other than the fact that if you eat a lot of turkey, it makes you feel sleepy at Thanksgiving. You'd have to eat like a 46-pound turkey to get enough tryptophan in you for it to actually make any sense. But eight hours is not necessarily what everybody needs. Let me give you a couple of examples as to why we know this to be true now. So the average sleep cycle, right, going from wake to REM and then back to REM takes approximately 90 minutes long, right? The average human has five of those 90-minute cycles. If you just do the math, Five times 90 is 450 minutes divided by 60 is seven and a half hours. So the math doesn't even make it to eight hours, right? So when we start to think about these ideas, one of the biggest things that people tell me all the time, they're like, Michael, thank you so much for giving me permission to not have to get eight hours of sleep. Because people, what they do is they get in bed and they think, okay, I've got enough time to get my eight hours and then they don't fall asleep. And then they start to get anxious about it. And then they start to get anxiety about it, which causes autonomic arousal, which makes it hard to sleep, right? And so what ends up happening is it's this washing machine of anxiety that comes through because of this expectation that everybody's supposed to get eight hours. Un again, to be clear, everybody's sleep need changes by, the, by themselves, by month, can change monthly for women, can change over the course of seasons or yearly. Right. When you look at women's menstrual cycle, it's a perfect example of how people are not thinking through the whole idea. I've got women who need more sleep before they have their period and who need less sleep after they have their period. So we adjust their bedtimes accordingly. Like, again, this myth of eight hours is really one that we really need to smash. So something else you hear people say quite frequently is I'm running low on sleep. I need to catch up. So can you talk about the theory? So, okay, I can sleep for four hours, four hours, four hours, and then I'm going to sleep for 20. Or Yeah. Let's talk about catching up, the myth of catching up. Right. And so that's another myth is catching up. It's almost impossible to actually catch up on sleep. Now, I want to be clear for folks out there who are shift workers or who have only been getting like four or five hours of sleep at a time per night, you're not screwed for the rest of your life, okay? Your body can absorb a certain amount of what we consider to be sleep deprivation, but 
the consistency of your sleep schedule is actually what gives you energy, is actually what allows you to feel better. And so a lot of people turn to me and they say, Michael, I'm just going to blow through my week. I'm going to get four hours every night. And then on the weekend, I'm going to clear through and I'm going to catch up on all of it. The human body can only take on so much sleep in a single bout of sleep uh, while it's uh, natural and healthy sleep. There, to be clear, there are some pathological things like there's something called Klein-Levin syndrome where people can sleep for 20, 22 hours in a 24-hour period, believe it or not. So that, that's a very different situation. But in general, what ends up happening is your body will get maybe eight, maybe nine hours, and it'll eventually just wake up after it. And here's the problem when you sleep for extended periods of time. You feel like crap when you wake up. Right. I don't know about you, but I feel like absolute crap if I sleep longer in the mornings than my normal wake up time. And that's really kind of the idea that I want to bring forward here. It's about your wake up time, even more so than your bedtime. But the moment that you wake up, if you can keep it consistent with something called your chronotype, you will actually have far more energy and believe it or not, need less sleep. So you mentioned chronotypes. So can you speak a little bit about our biological predispositions as we think about what time we need to go to bed, what time we need to wake up? And just how do you think about that? Can I speak about it? Dude, I wrote a book on it. I'm down for this. This is my area. I love this stuff. So chronotypes is a word that many people may not have heard, but actually almost everybody has heard of the concept before. So when we look at a chronotype, if you've ever been called an early bird or a night owl, these are chronotypes, okay? So historically, back in the 70s, there was a questionnaire that came out called the morningness, eveningness questionnaire, right? And there was a group of researchers and they discovered, hey, some people have a proclivity for waking up early, some people have a proclivity for going to bed late. What's going on here? So we started to investigate. Now, fast forward 50 years later, guess what? It's genetic. If you sent me your 23andMe data or your Ancestry.com data, I could actually show you where on your genetic strain that there's what's called a SNP or a mutation in the gene, specifically your PER3 gene, which can make you an early bird or make you a night owl. What's more interesting is a new discovery. So we've known about these things for a while. I actually figured out that there's a genetic form of insomnia that is actually represented through chronotypes. And so I put that as the fourth chronotype. So when I put forward my book, instead of there being three chronotypes, I have come, I've come to the conclusion that there's a fourth chronotype and it's a form of insomnia. And I'll tell you how I came to the conclusion was the woman that I was working with the book on had terrible insomnia. And what we discovered was in fact that she was an extreme night owl and it turns out that once we were able to figure that out, she no longer had insomnia. It's pretty fascinating. So can you walk us through briefly the four chronotypes? Yep. So the early bird is replaced by what I call the lion, okay? And the lion is kind of like the COO of the company, right? So these are the people that are, they wake up at 5.45 in the morning, they make a list every day, they go from step one to step two to step three, very orderly. The biggest problem though with being a lion, even though some people love waking up at 4.45 in the morning and getting the start on their day, lions are not so great socially. Dinner in a movie is kind of out for a lion because they've been up since 4.30 in the morning. I mean, my God, they don't want to go to a movie or something like that, although with COVID, who knows? But you know what I'm saying? Like that socially is strange for them because they can't stay up late. Bears are people in the middle. 
by the way, 50% of people are bears. And it's the best to be a bear. I kind of wish I was a bear because the whole world works on a bear's schedule. The perfect working environment schedule for a bear is nine to five. That's kind of what's going on out there, right? Now, bears are great because bear, they're usually they're pretty extroverted. They're very, they're the people that kind of get the work done. They're lots of fun. A really good group of people, generally speaking. Also, they also make really great friends. And then the, the last chronotype, that was known before me was called the night owl. I call these people a wolf. So these are my artists, my actors. These are my most creative people. Kind of makes sense, though, if you think about it, right? So these are the people that are rock and rollers until three o'clock in the morning on stage and things like that. And so they're the late nighters there. And then the final one, again, is my group called the Dolphins. Um, and they're the insomniacs. And these are people, they're a lot like lions, but they've got a lot of anxiety. And so we try to do things to help them with their anxiety. So... I very much appreciate the refresher, and, and I know that the, we've got the four groups, and maybe it's true for all groups, but if you had to generalize, mm-hmm. what what gives a person their greatest chance for a great night's sleep? Like, how would you design a day? What, yeah. what does it look like, or is it different for everyone? Actually, I've come up with five steps that everybody can use across chronotypes that will actually almost ensure a good night's sleep, Okay. So step number one is to learn what your chronotype is and wake up at your chronotypical wake-up time. You notice I didn't say bedtime. People want to go watch a movie. People want to do whatever. That's fine. But wake up at your chronotypical wake-up time is step number one. Step number two actually has to do with caffeine. We haven't had a chance to talk about caffeine yet, but caffeine is arguably one of the biggest offenders in our sleep. And most people don't realize it, but the half-life of caffeine is between six and eight hours right? So if you have a cup of coffee at two o'clock in the afternoon, half of that caffeine is still on board at 10 o'clock at night. Right. Which is kind of an interesting thought process. It's like, wow, I I, just because I'm not feeling it, I don't think it's in my system. But in fact, it is. Now, I guarantee you there's some listeners out here who are going to say, wait a second, Dr. Bruce is about to tell us when to stop drinking caffeine. And I am. Stop caffeine by 2 p.m., right? But Dr. Bruce, I can have a cup of coffee with dinner and I can fall right to sleep. I can handle my caffeine. Don't worry about me. That's the feedback that I get from some people. That would be me. Right. (laughs) Wrong. Okay. So here's the interesting thing that's fascinating is we've now learned that people have different caffeine sensitivities. So I have one patient who, if she eats a chocolate kiss, she's up for two days. I got another one who can drink a pot of coffee and go straight to sleep. But here's where it gets interesting, Jason, is if you drink a cup of coffee, let's say with dinner, right? And then I put electrodes on your head and allowed you to fall asleep. Here's what's going to happen is the quality of the sleep that you're getting is going to be reduced very dramatically. Caffeine's a stimulant. There's no other way to shake it. And it actually prevents you from getting into stages three and four sleep. So and remember, that's beauty sleep. That's the physical restoration. That's the stuff we want. So if everybody could stop caffeine by 2 p.m., you will find that you'll be able to go into these progressive sleep stages and gain many of the benefits of sleep. Step number three actually has to do with alcohol. So one of the things that we now know about alcohol is it takes the average human, depending upon your size and your weight, about an hour to digest one alcoholic beverage. Now, many people, actually, more people use alcohol than uh, any other sleep aid in the world. It, more people drink themselves to sleep than anything else. And let me be clear, this is not a good idea. While alcohol does make you feel a little tipsy and a little relaxed and that anxiety begins to to lower a little bit, 
alcohol unfortunately does terrible things to our sleep cycles. In fact, one of the things that it does if you drink alcohol too close to bedtime is it actually completely obliterates stages three and four sleep, which again is that physical restoration. So it's not a great idea. And then the second thing that alcohol does, which is really unfortunate, it's a diuretic, right? Once you start drinking, if you pee and break the seal, dude, you're peeing all night long, right? Sleep in and of itself is actually a dehydrative event. Most people don't know, but you actually lose almost a full liter of water from the humidity in your breath alone. So look at it like this. I've gone out drinking one night. I drink too close to bedtime. I become dehydrated. I sleep. The sleeping in and of itself is dehydrating. And I wake up. I'm like a freaking raisin at that point, right? I mean, I've got almost no hydration. And what do most people unfortunately do? Drink coffee, right? There's a lot of water in coffee, but there's also a lot of caffeine in coffee, which makes you have to pee. So step number three is to stop alcohol three hours before bed. Michael, why three hours? I'll tell you why. Remember, one person, one hour, one beverage. So if you drink an alcoholic beverage, drink a glass of water, wait an hour. Second one, water, wait an hour. By the third drink, you need to be evaluating what's kind of going on, right? Most people, two drinks is kind of that space where it's nice to have dinner, chilling out. But once you kind of hit that third drink, if alcohol has a tendency to affect people differently. One, it gives people energy. And for some people, especially men, it can make them more aggressive. So once again, really not the time to be having uh, the third, the fourth, the fifth drink, because that's really going to lead to terrible sleep and probably going to give you the double whammy of you're staying up even later than your normal bedtime, as well as having alcohol on board. Step number four has to do with exercise. The best thing that you can possibly do to improve the quality of your sleep is daily exercise. Let's be fair. You don't have to run a marathon, okay? I'm not talking about even more than 20 minutes of exercise at a, in a day. And by the way, you can even break it up. What's fascinating that we learn, though, is that exercise, depending upon how much exercise you do, increases your core body temperature. Kind of makes sense, right? Your body's moving around, so your core body temperature goes up. Remember, everybody, in order to fall asleep, your core body temperature actually has to drop. There's kind of a problem there, right? If you're exercising too close to bedtime, your core body temperature is high. So step number four is to stop exercise four hours before bed. Notice I said exercise, but stop exercise roughly four hours before bed. And step number five, which is my last step, is has to do with waking up. So I did tell everybody that sleep is a dehydrative event. So on your bedside table, sitting next to you, you should have approximately 15 ounces of water. Okay, and, the, and it should be in a reusable form, not like one of those disposable bottles, but a reusable form, right? And when you wake up in the morning, there's three things that I want you to do. I want you to, num step number five is take five deep, long, slow breaths when you wake up, drink your 15 ounces of water, and walk over to the window or walk outside and get 15 minutes of sunlight. Michael, why are you telling me to get sunlight? I'll tell you why. So what's really interesting is sunlight has certain rays in it, types of wavelengths of light called blue light. I'm sure you've all heard about blue light blocking glasses and all the dangers and all the things. Sun actually has it naturally. What's good about blue light is when it comes down, it hits a very special cell in your eyeball called a melanopsin cell, and it turns off the melatonin faucet in your brain. That's awesome in the mornings. Not good at night, but awesome in the morning. So step number five is to drink is to take five deep breaths, drink 15 ounces of water, and get 15 minutes of sunlight. That will absolutely help clear that brain fog and set you up for a great day. 
I love it. I love it. And so I want to build off a couple of things you said. So you, you talked about exercise and we got the memo in terms of not a good idea to exercise too close to bed. But with regards to exercise, are all forms of exercise created equal? Are there some forms that are better in terms of sleep? Absolutely, there are. So it depends on what you're kind of going for. So like, as an example, I, in my most recent book, The Power of When, I actually broke exercise up into four different types of exercise. So we have cardio, we have weightlifting, we have yoga, stretching, and then we have team sports, right? And we found that there are different times of day that actually are really good for those. So I would argue that we would find the same thing would happen for exercise uh, for sleep and exercises, there are going to be different things that are going to be uh, better for sleep than others. Generally speaking, what we seem to see is more of the cardiorespiratory exercises. So a biking or running a rowing a swimming have a tendency to do more good for sleep than, for example, a static bench press might be able to do. So high intensity interval training. Probably I like good. HIIT training. Yeah. I like HIIT training as long as it's not too close to bedtime. But I also think there's a really important place for yoga and stretching with sleep, right? And so if for people who wake up and they have low back pain or things of that nature, having a small stretch before you wake up, I mean, I mean, before you go to sleep and then a small one in the mornings can be a lifesaver. And there are a lot of different stretches from a yoga perspective that can be very helpful in the morning or even in the evening, again, to help people settle down. So I like people to get involved in multiple forms of physical exercise if we can. So in terms of yoga, I have to ask, what are some of your favorite poses to wind down at night? So obviously, Savasana is the easiest one, right? Because you're just kind of lying there and it's like, boom, you're out. I mean, half the time when I'm in a yoga class, I fall asleep during that position anyway. I personally, because I have low back pain, I personally like to do child's pose and then I do a bunch of cat-cow before and that helps open up my back a little bit. And then when I can lie in my bed, I feel super comfortable and I'm not really worried about tossing and turning. So I, I do those before bed. And then in the morning time, I do inversions to help wake me up more so because inversions are terrible at night because all the blood rushes to your head and makes you very conscious. I like doing a good standing forward bend sometimes too in the evening just to kind of move that lower back. I do that when I travel exactly. quite a bit. Um, so you, you mentioned alcohol, mentioned coffee, mentioned yep. the power of hydration. Let's talk about food. So what role does diet play? And I, and I have a specific question too. For me, and I, I found this interesting. And I'm curious your perspective. So we'll talk about nutrition as a whole and something I've found. So I'm 46. I don't eat as much meat as I used to. I used to be like a huge carnivore. Now, not so much. Like if I'm in Austin, like you are right now, I'll have barbecue, but like, I'm more probably like I eat red meat, like maybe once or twice a quarter. I just, I just don't. With that said, what I do, I find it affects my sleep. Mm, how do, how so? I, I just don't get to sleep as easily right so i have a theory i don't have a lot of data behind it but i have a theory okay so did you ever try to do like a keto diet or a paleo i'm a human guinea pig i've done everything i've done vegan i've done keto okay. i've done it all so remember when you first first time you did keto you got the keto flu a little bit i didn't get it that i didn't get it that bad but people do yeah. right and the keto flu oftentimes is accompanied by insomnia and restless sleep, right? We think it has to do with the large amount of protein. 
So specifically animal protein. So what we're seeing, what my, this is a theory. I don't have a lot of data to support this yet. So all the people out there who are going to be like, Michael, here's what I'm thinking is going on, is we have a large amount of animal protein ingested into the body. We know that when the body has tremendous amounts of protein in it, we actually get more energy. Like as an example, when I first started keto a million years ago, now I'm more of an intermittent faster. I absolutely had restless sleep. And I hear this from patients quite frequently. That's the case. It usually goes away after your, like if you've gone super protein, it'll usually go away after a couple, three days. Once your body kind of gets used to it, my guess is it's probably disrupting your microbiome. And then remember your microbiome directly affects your circadian rhythm. So that's probably, if I had to guess, that's probably what's kind of happening because your body's not used to having animal protein in it. So it's going to have that reaction and that's going to probably cause a cascade if I had to guess. Makes sense. So in terms of overall diet, what do you recommend for, for people looking to optimize Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, what's interesting is different diets appear to have different effects on sleep. So I've written extensively about vegetarian and vegan diets and their effects on sleep. I've written on paleo and keto, those effects on sleep, as well as Mediterranean diet and that effect on sleep. And the, as the data reads now, it's the Mediterranean diet that appears to be the big winner. It turns out that probably the best dietary overall guideline for sleep, at least, turns out to be the Mediterranean diet. At least that's what we've got the data on so far. And of course, that doesn't have a tremendous amount of red meat or those types of animal proteins in it. That diet has more fish, fowl, obviously vegetables, things like that. And there, it appears as though, actually, I get a lot of questions about food and sleep. It's kind of interesting because I think that food plays a very critical role, especially in people waking up in the middle of the night. We've had a lot of people tell me, they're like, Michael, I wake up at like 2.37 in the morning. I don't know. It's kind of funny because it's usually like a very specific time. And when I talk to them, I ask them like, what was the timing of their last meal? And more times than not, they stopped eating at like seven o'clock at night, right? And so if you take the time from seven at night until 2.30 in the morning, that's seven and a half hours, right? They're out of fuel would be my argument, right? And so when you don't have enough sugar on board, your brain says, oh crap, let's activate cortisol, right? To wake me up to either go find food or get some insulin in here and start going, right? And that's what I think is, is spiking for people. And so one of the things I talked about with people is can't, how do you keep your blood sugar stable without having to eat a ton of sugar, <laughs> right? Like, cause that's kind of the problem. So I've discovered two different things that have been quite helpful for people in the middle of the night, actually to do before they fall asleep. One is guava leaf tea, not guava fruit and not guava juice, but guava leaf tea. There's at least one study to show that it keeps blood sugar stable. Also, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but raw honey, a teaspoon of raw honey about 30 minutes before bed. Not if you're diabetic, please. <laughs> not if you're paleo or keto, please. But that can actually keep blood sugar somewhat stable as well. As far as snacks and things like that, I'm oftentimes telling people you don't want to go to bed full, but you also don't want to go to bed hungry, right? So it's there's nothing wrong with having a 200, 250 calorie snack about 30 minutes before bed, but you want to think about what's in that snack for sure, right? So the first thing I'd like to explain to people is carbs are good for sleep. So that's kind of this thing like, oh my gosh, carbs, like that was like that terrible word for so long. Carbohydrates actually produce serotonin, which is the calming hormone and helps us be able to relax to fall asleep. So if you're going to have a snack, about 250 calories, make it about 70% carbs and about 30% either fat or protein or something like that. 
So like what I tell people to do is like take a couple of slices of avocado and put it on a rice cake. Like that's a perfect snack or a non-sugar cereal with almond milk, right? Because you don't want dairy late at night because it could make your stomach get upset. Like those are the types of things that people can do preload that can help them fall asleep and stay asleep. So you mentioned earlier working with people who no matter what we do everything right, sometimes we're just up at 2 a.m. And so exactly what happens in those situations? What should be in our emergency toolkit, if you will? Like we're up at two. We got to get up at six. What what should we do next? How do we make sure we take care of the sleep we need? So, so it's kind of funny because this is, this comes up more often than you might imagine. So these days I do high performance sleep coaching. So I work with athletes, celebrities, CEOs, and I teach them what to do when they can't get enough sleep. (laughs) So this is very apropos to the things that we look at. So let's say, for example, it's two, you got to be up at six, 630. What do you do? So number one, look at the time that you have left. Remember, you sleep in roughly 90 minute segments. So try to figure out how many chunks of sleep cycles that you're probably going to get. So if it's, let's say it's two o'clock in the morning, you could easily sleep until five, get two full sleep cycles and be okay. Right now, when I say, okay, I want to be very clear. That doesn't mean go out and drive a vehicle, right? If you've only had two sleep cycles, you can get to your meeting, hopefully with an Uber or somebody else driving you, please. And you will be able to make it through that meeting. Then later in the day, around one o'clock, you're going to want to take a 25 minute nap. Now I used to napping very strategically for a lot of my clients and it's, it can be very helpful. And I'm going to teach everybody today, my secret nap. I call it the Napa latte. All right. And so this is a caffeine induced nap. Yes, you heard it here. Caffeine induced nap. So what do you do? You take a cup of black drip coffee. turns out that drip coffee has the most caffeine in it. Throw three ice cubes in it merely to shut, to cool it down. And then around one o'clock in the afternoon, hopefully you've been able to stay awake until that point in time, slug it right? Close your eyes, set an alarm for 25 minutes. Now, Michael, why on earth would I do that? There are two systems in the brain for sleep. One is called sleep drive. The other is called sleep rhythm. We've been talking a lot about rhythm, the circadian rhythm, but sleep drive is actually what we can talk about here. So it turns out that a buildup of something called adenosine in your brain is what makes you feel sleepy. If you look at the molecular structure of adenosine and the molecular structure of caffeine, they're off by one molecule. Kind of interesting, right? That the thing that makes us wake up and the thing that makes us go to sleep is literally off by one molecule. But what's cool about it is those receptor sites will accept caffeine. So when you drink the caffeine and then you sleep, your sleep burns through the adenosine. The caffeine is literally waiting. It locks into those adenosine receptors. You're good for four hours, guaranteed. It's awesome. So something I do for, for my own personal sleep hygiene is uh, I'm very big on, you know, electronic sundown. I, yep. t- I also temperature, make sure the, the room is cool. Massive. So could you talk about the role of temperature and body temperature? And I would have also noticed too, because I, I, I wear all these gadgets. I'm a tech person is that when I do yep. consume alcohol, body temperature rises. So let's Absolutely. talk about body temperature and sleep etiquette. So, so I'm really glad you brought this up because first of all, very few people bring this up on podcasts and I'm really glad that you did. If I had to pick one thing other than light, it would be temperature affecting the sleep cycle. Okay. So we've already talked a little bit about light, about how blue light turns off the melatonin cycle and all of that. Right. But temperature turns out to be equally as important to melatonin. 
So in order for melatonin to be released, your core body temperature must drop. If you're doing anything that doesn't allow that core body temperature to drop, that's where we have the problem. And so the cooler that we can make our bodies, the better. Now, to be fair, there's a lower level limit, right? So you wouldn't want to cool your ambient temperature to anything lower than about 65 degrees. To be clear, your body will never get to 65 degrees. You'd be long dead. You'd be in a freezer for sure. But you want to keep your room a little bit cooler. So that's certainly one thing that I would be doing for people. Also, this is kind of an interesting one. I think I've saved more marriages as a sleep doctor than I ever would have as a marital therapist because there's always a fight in the bed for different things. And so one person tends to like it warmer and one person tends to like it cooler. In most relationships, not trying to be sexist here, usually the woman likes it warmer and the man seems to like it cooler. So what we oftentimes do is we ask the woman to wear socks and we ask the man to not wear socks and put his feet out from under the covers. And that actually allows for this interesting temperature <laughs> regulation to cohabitate two humans in the same form. But temperature, to be clear, is a massive, massive factor. If, if your outside environment is over about 75 degrees, it's almost impossible to fall asleep. Now, again, to be fair, I lived in Scottsdale, Arizona for 10 years, okay? If I could cool my house to 75 degrees on one of those days where it was 120, I, I'd be broke because it would cost me so much damn money. So if you live in an environment like that, you wanna be about 20 to 25 degrees off of the daily high at least, right? And again, it has a lot to do with this lowering of the temperature if you can. I love that you mentioned couples and, and being a couples therapist. And I love oh, yes. your very practical tips, but what about snoring? Oh yes, let's talk about snoring. Oh wait, but I've got another kind of fun practical thing that's cool for couples, literally. They now actually make um, individual temperature uh, devices. So there's like a pad that you can put underneath your bed that you can cool one side or warm one side. There's a couple of different things like that. But couples and snoring, that is the factor, right? So interesting piece of data. If you look at the data, the person who sleeps next to, not the snorer, but the person who sleeps next to the snorer, on average, loses one hour of sleep every single night, every night. So if you're, so it's not, so a lot of people turn to me and they say, and unfortunately, it's usually a very kind of sexist uh, attitude. It's usually the guy who's snoring and he's like, well, that's her problem. I don't have a problem. It doesn't wake me up. Let me be clear. You do have a problem because your partner's lack of sleep is going to have an effect on your relationship. I can almost assure you of that. Number two, snoring in and of itself is actually a sign, could be an early sign of sleep apnea. Many people don't, many people think, oh, snoring's just not a big deal. Who really cares? It's just a loud, obnoxious noise. It's actually representing a person having a struggle trying to breathe. They're sucking air in as fast as they can because they're not breathing well. And that quickness in the sucking of the air causes this vibration, which causes the snore. So when you listen to somebody snoring, they're starving for air. They're trying to breathe. It's not, oh, it's a cute little snore, or oh my God, that guy is shaking the walls of the house. This is a situation that's worth addressing. Now, let's say that you don't have sleep apnea, but it's straight up snoring. What do you do as a couple? A couple of different things that you can do. Remember, sound is a matter wave. So if you put something to block the actual sound wave from coming to you, it will actually help you. So what are you? what's an easy thing to do? a pillow wall in between the two people, right? Now, the snorer might not like that, but that's good 
because that's a sign to them that they're disrupting somebody else's life, right? And maybe they're gonna start to get the hint, hey, this isn't this is affecting other people. Put a pillow between you and the snore because the snore will bounce back and it will wake up the snorer. Aha, now we're getting somewhere. The second thing is decongest for better rest. So nasal congestion without question is one of the biggest factors in snoring. Okay. And what does it have to do with? Sometimes it's particulates that are in your home. It could be that you have a dog or a cat sleeping in your bed, lying on your pillow. There's a whole host of things, but if you've got nasal congestion, you're almost guaranteed to be snoring. Okay. Another thing, another big factor for nasal congestion, alcohol. So if I have two or three beers, my wife is like, dude, you snore like a freight train. And so I actually have different things that I do to help with that. I'm going to tell you what those are in just a second. And then the other option, the other problem with snoring is sometimes it's not a human. I have a French bulldog that sleeps in my bed. I got news for you, brother. He snores like a freight train, right? And so it's very disruptive. I haven't figured out exactly how to change my French bulldog snoring. However, I do have some steps for guys and gals out there. Number one thing, about a 5% weight loss, um, especially for guys, not as much for women, but especially for guys. It turns out that we carry weight through our neck this adipose tissue, and that's one of the first places that we gain it. A lot of times, if you're a guy and somebody says, wow, your face looks a little bit heavy, like that's how people can tell that you're gaining weight. What it is, it's that, it's that your neck has actually gotten thicker, right? That thick neck puts pressure on your throat, and when you're lying back and breathing, it actually crushes your throat. A 5% weight loss would actually be really good. So what does that mean, Michael? If you're a 200-pound guy, I'm talking about 10 pounds. I'm not saying go lose 50 pounds. I'm saying lose 10 pounds. You'll drop the snore by about 15 to 20 decibels, which is big for your bed partner. The second thing I like are internal nasal dilators. So external nasal dilators are like the breathe right strips and the strips that you put across your nose. The thing that I personally have found that works the best for me is a product called Mute, M-U-T-E. I receive no financial anything from Mute, just to be clear. It's an internal nasal dilator, so it's a stint that goes inside the nostrils and it actually keeps them open. And what's really cool about it is you can change the aperture because everybody has different sized nostrils and nobody really knows that. So you can actually open it up. Dude, when I drink and I put that thing in, zero snoring. And then about, about six months ago, I started to put one in when I run and now I run faster because I'm getting more air, right? So this internal nasal dilator, certainly something that people want to look at. The other thing that you can think about when you've got kind of a snoring bed partner is what can you do in your ears? So I've actually recently started working with Bose and we actually have this amazing thing called sleep buds. So I love these things. I personally sleep with them almost every night, not because my wife snores, but because you know that French bulldog I was telling you about? Guess what? This is my solution to my French bulldog snoring. And so it's really cool because there's an entire sound library. So it's specific sounds that, that help with sleep and things like that. It, and it's got the noise masking on it and it lasts for like 10 hours. So that's been my big solution. I love it. And you're mentioning tech. And look, all, I think of the tech addicts out there, but I'm one of them. People who can't keep their phones out of the bedroom <laughs> and we so like what's the best way to, to manage technology before we go to sleep or and, and and can we live next to technology as we sleep so i would say that yes we can live with technology but there might be some precautions that we should consider taking right so one thing that i do is i flip my phone to airplane mode at night 
because I'm not, number one, really not interested in any phone calls, but number two, cell phones leak radiation. That's just the bottom line. So I'm, I'm more than happy to turn that off. Also, to be fair, after I've kind of set my stuff on my phone, if I'm going to be listening, then I actually plug my phone in either across the room or downstairs. And I like doing that personally for multiple reasons, um, especially I've noticed for myself personally, if I do wake up in the middle of the night, which isn't often, and I go to pee, I definitely feel like there's this magnetism that's like taking me to my phone, like I'm supposed to be looking something up at four o'clock in the morning, which is the stupidest thing ever. But having that phone outside of the room has been quite helpful for me. So sometimes I'll do that. And then also I wear things like blue light blocking glasses. So if I want to watch television or I want to read, I can do that kind of thing. So I think there's definitely room in the bedroom for technology. I just think we have to be respectful of the sleep process and how does technology help or hinder it. So you mentioned being up at night and look, you are the sleep doctor, you're the man, sure. but, but I'm sure sometimes it happens. Like what are the things that keep you up at night? And when you have those racing thoughts, when you're, you're you get that monkey mind, what, what do you do to, to yeah. turn it off? So I'll tell you, there's a couple of different things. So first of all, there's usually the things that keep me up at night, honestly, are my children. If anything is going wrong with my kids, and I know you've got two itty bitties, you've got two young ones. I have a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old. Trust me, bigger kids, bigger problems. So if something's going on with my son or something is going on with my daughter, I'm aware. I just, it's hard for me to turn that part of my brain off sometimes. And if that happens, there's a couple of different things that I know that I'm going to do. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm, going, I'm not going to tell myself to not think about those things because that never works. Right. And so one of the things that I do is called a worry journal. And so I take a piece of paper and I just draw a line down the center of it. And I write down on the left hand side all of the things that I'm worried about, concerned with kind of those racing ideas. And then on the other side of the column, I give one step towards a resolution. It doesn't have to fix the problem, but it tells my mind that I've got a plan in place because that's usually what's bothering me at night is what's gonna to happen tomorrow? What's gonna be going on in the future? How do I figure that out and plan for it? I've discovered for me and for many of my patients, if I have a very detailed idea of a stress of what's gonna be happening in a stressful event in the future, it's not nearly as stressful, right? Because I've kind of started to plan it out. So that's one thing that I do for sure. Um, another thing that I do is there's actually data behind this as well, is I make I flip the script and I be optimistic. So a lot of times it's really easy at two o'clock in the morning to be like, shit, this sucks, right? Like, oh my God, I gotta be up in four hours or I'm worried about my kid and something's going on and blah, blah, blah. What do I do? I actually flip that script. And so the first thing that people have a tendency to do, which they really shouldn't do, is look at the clock, right? So do yourself a favor. Don't watch the clock all night long. It's just anxiety provoking as hell. But if you do, you're gonna instantly do the mental math, right? And you're gonna say, two o'clock, I gotta be up at six. Oh shit, four hours of sleep. And you're gonna try to sleep. Remember, sleep is a lot like love. The less you look for it, the more it shows up, okay? So looking for it doesn't help. But if you can flip that script and you can be positive in the middle of the night, you will fall back asleep. So here's what I tell myself when I look at the clock, if it's two o'clock in the morning and I haven't fallen asleep yet, I say, okay, I know I'm upset about something, but that's okay. I can lie here and relax. And even if I don't fall asleep, there's some rejuvenation that's going on in my body. About an hour's worth of lying down is worth maybe 15 or 20 minutes of sleep from a rejuvenative standpoint. So you're not doing nothing, by the way, by just lying there and relaxing. So I'm going to lie here 
and I'm gonna relax, and I've got four more hours to maybe get some sleep. And so I'm just gonna allow my body to do that. And if I don't, it's cool, because I'm still gonna wake up, and I'm gonna be able to make it through my day, because I know I've done this before. It's not like this has never happened to me. And as soon as you start to get that calmness, and you start to lower that anxiety, guess what? The natural sleep process will begin to take over and allow you to fall asleep. So I change my attitude in the middle of the night. And oftentimes that can be incredibly helpful. The other thing, I, I know it sounds a little crazy, but sometimes I'll throw in those sleep buds just to not piss off my partner <laughs> by flipping on the TV or whatever, because that's cool because actually if I go to sleep with them on, then they're still going. So a lot of times if I wake up or I'm not con or I'm concerned or whatever, then they can kind of zoom me in. So that works out as well too. Yeah, I'm excited to try those both earbuds. This sounds like the first thing I would reach for <laughs> in the middle of the I know, night. Right? So it's also, look, the winter solstice is here and yeah, yeah shorter days. So let's talk about the seasons and sleep by the seasons. Oh, yeah. oh dude, sleep by the season. Nobody ever talks about it. You're asking me the best questions because nobody ever asked me all these things. Absolutely. There are seasonal changes in our sleep. Like we, how we were talking before about that whole idea of eight hours is a myth, right? Seasonal sleep changes are what we really should be looking at. Winter time, there's less light. So guess what? Our circadian rhythms are going to be off. We're not going to be as affected as much. During the wintertime, this is the time to really zone in on your schedule and really lock in that wake-up time. Dude, I go to bed at midnight, and I wake up at 6.13 roughly every single day without an alarm. I'm the sleep doctor, for God's sakes. I get six hours and 13 minutes of sleep, but I'm super consistent in my sleep. And that's I haven't had any coffee this morning. Like, this is my normal Michael Bruce in the morning with no caffeine, having had six hours and 15 minutes of sleep, right? And so again, we start to adapt, we start to understand all of these big rules that are out there, we need to be personalizing these more and we need to be understanding more about our sleep. So we're recording this around the solstice, so December mm -hmm. 21st, and this is gonna air the first week of you know January, or second week of January, oh, yes. or early 21. And so with a year like 2020, we're, we're, it's behind us. Oh. By the time you, our listeners right now, we're in 2021. If there's one piece of advice you have for everyone listening to ensure that 2021 is the best year of sleep, yep. what advice would that be? Wake up at your chronotypical wake-up time. That's it. If you only do one thing, if you just wake up, Every single day, including the weekends, at your chronotypical wake-up time, that will have the largest effect on you out there. Second thing would be caffeine. You know, I, the thing that now tell me, you mentioned we talked about snoring and something that's helped me. Mm -hmm. I had James Nestor on this podcast. And I started, oh, I to, awesome. started to really talk about breathing. I started to really focus on breathing through my nose. And, it, and it's helped me significantly. And I notice the change if I drink exactly what you said earlier. Yes, right, right. So James's book is fascinating. Actually, I saw James, he gave a lecture at Genius Network with uh, Joe Polish, Joe. And then James and I have been actually talking back and forth. I just got his book. So what James did, which was really necessary, was he started to highlight the fact that so many people are mouth breathers and how bad mouth breathing is. There was a book, I mean, it was a zillion years ago. It was called Shut Your Mouth. And it was all about like just breathing through your nose and how important that is to your whole process, right? And this whole idea of congestion is so terrible. It, it has a lot to do, by the way, with thumb sucking, believe it or not. 
So when kids suck their thumbs, they push the roof of their mouth with their thumb. And what it does, because it's so malleable, it actually causes more of an apex inside of the, it, it, it changes the arch of the palate and it actually shrinks the skull in and it makes your sinuses smaller. Literally from sucking your freaking thumb, it changes the morphology. And then what we have is we have smaller sinus cavities. So we have kids with more congestion. And so what do they do? They breathe through their mouths and they have sleep apnea. Right. If we had palate expanders on more children, we would have far less sleep apnea in the world. And that's what James is is talking about. I mean, he may or may not understand that's exactly what he's from an anatomic. He's not a physician, but from an anatomical perspective, that's kind of what we're talking about here is trying to get these palate expanders in kids and trying to get kids to get the right morphology in their heads. So I need to get my little ones palate expanders. Well, what, what I would do is I would have them evaluated first. Like I wouldn't necessarily jump to the palate expansion. <laughs> I would evaluate them first. And if they're not thumb suckers or if they're not uh, kids who use pacifiers, then you're probably in pretty decent shape so far. But I would keep an eye on it for sure. Got it. Michael, thank you so much. Sleep is such a hugely important topic. And you are the man. You are the sleep doctor. And I know all of our listeners very much appreciate all of your wisdom. So thank you so much. Dude, thank you. I, I really enjoy the website. I enjoy the articles that we've on, worked on together. And this has been a blast. So I'm excited to uh, have the opportunity and, and teach people more about sleep. Awesome. So Michael Bruce here, wishing everybody out there sweet dreams. 